All right, 1 Samuel 29 and 30. So we have, um, we have seen over the last couple of weeks that God has been protecting David in various ways. He's been protecting him from Saul. We've seen that numbers of times. Saul tried to kill him um, in person a number of times. Tr- uh, Saul ordered his servants to kill David, um, and he brought out a large army to pursue David. And all of these were for naught. Why? Because God was protecting David. David had God on his side, and Saul was trying to prevent God's will from happening. And that just wasn't going to happen because God providentially had said, David will be the next king of Israel. He will sit on this throne and he is protecting him. We've seen David been spared from sin. We've seen him be spared from making some serious mistakes that would have been sin. Um, we, We saw him spare Saul's life twice when he could have killed him, easily killed him and taken the throne, and ripped it away from him. But that wasn't God's plan. That wasn't God's timing. And David understood the significance of raising his hand against the man who God had anointed. And he respected that, because he respected God. And he had a fear of God, and that prevented him from doing it. And he spared Saul's life. And in a way, David was sparing his own relationship with God by not sinning in doing that. And then we see God use different people to help David along the way. We see him send Abigail to speak wisdom to David, to prevent him from sinning and killing Nabal and all of his household. That's what David had said he was going to do. We're going to see in chapter 29 that um, God again spares David from sin. He spares David from fighting against his own people, from fighting against Israel. He providentially spares David again. And then in chapter 30, we'll see that God spares David's and his men's wives and families from being slaughtered by the Amalekites and that they are rescued by David and his men. David has been the prominent rising star over this last half of the book. But make no mistake, the main character in this book is God. He is the one who is acting and is accomplishing his will, and he's laying the groundwork for a really good king so that it would be an example of the perfect king that is coming in the future. And that's where all of this is headed. That's the trajectory of this book. But the theme of these two chapters that I'm pulling out is spared that God is sparing David, he is sparing lives for his, for his goodness, because of his goodness, and for his glory. So let's uh, take a look now in chapter 29, uh, picking up in verse 1. And for those of you that are new with us, that we're kind of jumping in the middle of a story here, but um, I'm sure you'll pick it up real quick, and we'll, uh, we'll, go, we'll go with that. So chapter 29, verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. Let's stop there for a moment. Do you remember Aphek? This is not like a Jerusalem type of town. But it was only mentioned once, and that was early in 1 Samuel, so I'm not going to like criticize if you don't remember. It was way back in chapter 4. And this is where the Philistines had camped before they had the battle where they took the Ark of the Covenant. 
So evidently this place is a, an ideal launching pad for attack into Israel. So we see them assembling at the same place. And the Israelites encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back, that he may return to his place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is, this not, is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. So let's, let's stop there for a moment and talk about what's going on here. So back at the beginning of chapter 28, we had seen that the Philistine forces were gathering. They were in a different place when evidently they were, that was staging, and they're coming to, to, um, to this place where they now gather for battle. And then we had kind of a parenthesis in chapter 28 where we're, we're shown what Saul is doing, and he goes and he seeks advice from the witch at Endor, this medium, and now the, the writer returns to the narrative, the story of these armies assembling for battle. Um, Achish defends David's loyalty. David has been with him for 16 months, and Achish has been deceived. David has been going out and raiding other people's lands, but then coming back and reporting to Achish that he'd been raiding in Judah. So Achish is completely convinced that David has made himself, in Achish's words, back in uh, back a chapter two, a stench in in the in the nose of Israel, that he has completely turned his loyalty away from Israel and to the Philistines, and Achish has so much confidence with him that he wants David and his men to be his rear guard, to be his bodyguards, essentially in this battle that is coming, and so he brings them, he brings David and his men to the battle. And then the lords of the Philistines are able to identify that these 600 men don't look like the rest of the Philistines. They're not told how they identified it, but they are able to say, these men are Hebrews. What are they doing here? That doesn't make any sense. We're about to go and attack the Hebrews. Why would we have Hebrews here? It doesn't appear that the lords of the Philistines at first recognize David, but Achish says, this is David, and here's the story. He is, he is loyal to us. He's loyal to me. The lords of the Philistines um, are risk-averse. <laughs> they, they do not want any part of David and his men being behind them in this battle when uh, they engage with the Israelites. So the lords of the Philistines are angry with Achish. They think he's naive, that David will turn on them in battle. Um, but they trust Achish enough to tell him to go home. And they don't say, bring him out here, let's execute him because he's a Hebrew. So they don't go that far. So there's either enough trust with Achish or uh, they don't think it's a serious threat. They send him away. And here they remember this song that we were introduced to back in chapter 18. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And the occasion for the writing of this song was David's victory over Goliath, 
the champion of the Philistines. Back in 21, chapter 21, when David had fled to Gath and then acted crazy to get away, the men in Gath were saying the same thing. Hey, isn't this the guy that they sang this song about? So this song has been around for a while, and it's still around, and I think there's a sting to it in the Philistines' army. And just looking at how, just looking at how long it's been around, I, I did some looking, and I, I wanted to kind of get a sense of the timeline of this anyway, and I don't think this is in your notes, but it's on the screen, it's interesting. So these are ages for Dave, David, and this is a little bit of speculation. This is what one commentator um, laid out we know that some of these dates are accurate, like the date that he became king of Judah. We know that he was 30 years old. So this commentator um, thinks that David was anointed by Samuel at age 12. I saw one that said 13, so we're, it's close. Um, Goliath. So he defeats Goliath at 17. He's a senior in high school, right? I mean, this is like crazy that this young man can accomplish something so momentous. And he says, this is not because the battle is man's, the battle is the Lord's. He relies on his God for this. He is, um, he's got about four years in there where he is in um, Saul's um, army and uh, in leading the army and in his court. Um, and then he gets exiled. He becomes a fugitive. Um, and he's on the run, the commentator thinks, for about nine years. This is a long time. This is a long time to be on the run living from place to place, um, having no, no steady home, and just you know, having to like, live off the land, so to speak. And I think that's the kind of thing that kind of got to David, which led him to say, this is just a matter of time until Saul gets me. I'm going to go to Philistia where he won't seek me, you know, a chapter or two ago, and, and that's where we find him now. And so we see a long trial for David, nine years where he is being pursued by Saul. And then in the next book, for, uh, 2 Samuel, he'll be appointed the king of Judah at age 30. He'll reign over Judah for seven years and then reign over the whole uh, nation of Israel at, as of age 37. So the point of this is this song has been around for 10 years. They've been singing this song or been talking about this song, have been stung by this song, the Philistines, for 10 long years. And they're tired of it. And so they send David back. Achish um, capitulates to the other lords and he says, okay, fine, I'll send him back. And in verse 6, he calls David and said to him, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. Hold on. We know that's not true. David has not been honest. He has been telling him lies every time he gets. And, and to me, it seems right that you should march out with me in, in, out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. So the Philistine lords are right. He is naive. He has been deceived. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So... Achish characterized David as being honest, as being blameless, and he swears by who in verse 6? As the Lord, all capital letters, L-O-R-D, Jehovah. As Jehovah lives, he thinks all these things. That gave me a fleeting thought 
could Akish possibly be a believer? And I thought, I don't think so. I don't think so, mainly because the Philistines were polytheists. They, they believed in multiple gods. So I think what he is doing here is he is trying to enhance his credibility to David by swearing by David's God. So I think that's what's going on. And Achish tells uh, David to go home, don't protest, go peaceably, don't make a scene. And uh, David does protest, but he only protests to Achish before he leaves. In, in verse 8, David said to Achish, but what have I done? Do you remember him saying that before? What have I done? Back in 17, is right before Goliath, and he said it to his brother. He was, he, David was going around in the camp of the Israelites saying, who is this giant that he should defy the armies of the living God? And his brother's like, pipe down. You know, who are you? Go back to the sheep. And David's like, what have I done? So he says it again, what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning and with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So David protests, but there's a little bit of ambiguity in his protest. So let's look at verse 8 a little bit more. He focuses on what Achish knew about him, and he challenges whether he had any reason to distrust, distrust uh, David. He wants to go, apparently, and fight against the enemies of my lord and king, but he doesn't actually say who that is. So a couple questions here for us to talk about. So what is David doing here? What is David's motives? What's going on? I think there's a few possibilities. We won't go too far down the speculation road, but what's he doing in saying this? I think one possibility is that he is acting insulted in order to enhance his credibility, to maintain his credibility with Akish. And if he's doing that, he's playing with fire, right? Because if he plays this card too strongly, Akish might say, you know what, you're right. I'm going to go back there and we're going to have you go to battle. And it's like, that would totally backfire. So maybe he's actually relieved, but he is trying to maintain credibility. Another possibility is the exact opposite. Maybe he's insulted because he really was insulted. He was acting insulted because he was really insulted. And he really thought that he should be able to go and fight. He was actually ready to fight. So that brings the question of, was David actually going to go into battle with the Philistines against the Israelites and kill his Hebrew brothers? That's a little hard to get your head around, isn't it? He certainly acts that way. He never actually said that he would fight. It's implied, but he doesn't say it explicitly. So that brings us to the question of who is David referring to when he says, my Lord and King? Two, I think, options here. One is Achish, the person he's talking to and who he's leading to believe that he is speaking about. What's the other possibility? Human. Saul. 
he's referred to Saul over and over again as my Lord and King throughout the book. So is this like a, like a double meaning that David is doing? Is this part of his continuing pattern of deception? We don't know. Some of the commentators believe that. They think that David was being intentionally vague because this was his plan. I think that's reading into it a bit. I don't know that we can actually come to that conclusion. But if the lords of the Philistines hadn't called him and his men out of the army, what would he have done in battle? Would he have turned on the Philistines just as they predicted? Maybe that was his plan all along, or maybe it would become his plan as part of the battle. So where does that go? So if Israel loses this battle, which they do, then David and his men are in big trouble because they've been traitors to who they were traitor to. <laughs> so this is like, like a double, double agent kind of thing. Although would, perhaps David and his men would have turned the tide. Maybe they would have been the difference maker in the battle. We don't know that. What's concerning to me is we don't see God in David's picture in this chapter. We don't see him at all. And the writer intentionally leaves him out. We don't know if there's anything going on that we haven't been told. But we don't know what David's intentions were, whether he would have turned on the Philistines, would he, would he have actually fought for the Philistines? I, I think that's very problematic because if he fights for the Philistines and actually kills Israelites, his path to the throne has become very, very murky at this point. How do you overcome that at the polls? You know, where it's like, this guy killed our brothers, and now we're going to make him king? You know, I mean, it's, it's hard enough to get consensus to make someone king in Israel. Perhaps God would intervene in an unimaginable way to separate David from the battle. We don't know. But what we do know is that God was dead set on protecting David. What we do know is that he used these lords of the Philistines to call David out, what, regardless of what David's intentions were, to call him out from fighting to protect him so that he would still have a path to the throne. And so David heads home, and he gets up early to do it because it's a three-day journey. When he gets there, it's not a happy moment. And we see in chapter 30, David and his men get to Ziklag, and the Amalekites, those guys, they're back. The ones that Saul was supposed to completely wipe out, the ones that David had been raiding in his spare time while living in Philistia, the Amalekites have done a raid in southern Philistia, southern Judah, and they have captured all of the women and children from Ziklag, where David has been living, and they burn Ziklag to the ground. The town is burned, the property is not spared, but we're told that they killed no one, middle of verse 2. Verse 3, and when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. We see that God has spared these families from destruction. But the men, the 600 men and David, are in distress, and they are weeping. 
They're shocked at what they come home to. Now, is anyone feeling a little irony here? A little irony that David would go out on these raids of these towns and perhaps traveling peoples and when he was in Philistia, and he would completely wipe out everyone that he found. He didn't leave anyone alive because he didn't want anyone coming back and telling Achish what David was actually doing. But here, God in his mercy and grace spares all of these loved ones from the same fate. It wouldn't have been unusual for them to do the same thing to these women and children that David had done to their people's The big difference, the people here are alive, and that gives some hope. The men are distressed, they're so distressed that they're talking of stoning David. What are they doing? They're looking for someone to blame. They're saying, David, this is your fault. If we had been here, we could have protected them. You had to insist to go up with this army of Philistia to fight against Israel. How does David react to the stress that is put on him. He turns to the Lord. He turns to God, and it says in verse 6, he, he was greatly distressed. Well, why was he greatly distressed? Well, his family has been kidnapped, his town has been burnt, burned to the ground, and the people he's leading want to kill him. So that's a pretty stressful situation. It's like everything has turned on him completely, and there's nothing more that could go wrong, seemingly. He is greatly distressed. And what is his reaction to the deep distress, the stress of the moment? His reaction is that he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He turns to Jehovah. He turns to the one who strengthens, the one who has strength. Does this sound familiar, this phrase? He strengthened himself in the Lord. It's used in back in chapter 23. It was slightly different, though. There we didn't see David strengthening himself in the Lord. We saw his good friend Jonathan came and strengthened David's hand in the Lord. God used Jonathan to strengthen David then. David has learned, he's matured, he's grown, and he's able to strengthen himself now by turning to the Lord. We get physically strong through exercise. Spiritually, we get strong by exercising faith and having God strengthen us. And that is who David turns to. So David and his men are distressed. David turns to the Lord. What do they do next? Verse 7. David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. God promises the result they're hoping for. And so they set out. 600 men, they set out. They come to a brook, and 200 men are exhausted. This brook, um, again, according to one commentator, was about 12 miles from Ziklag. So they've been you know, marching for three days, then they do a 12-mile hike, and there's 200 guys that say, I can't go on. I can't go any further. And so they stop there, and 400 go on. It's significant that what we see here, that after David has strengthened himself in God, what is the first thing he does? He says to God, what do I do now? 
He doesn't make assumptions. He doesn't assume I should go after them. He said, and, and it's like, hold on, this is like your families. Like all of us would be like, yeah, we're going. We're, we're going we're gonna to track those guys down, even if it costs us our lives. We're, you know, we're going to get our families back. Well, how did they know that their families were still alive? Well, there's no bodies in Ziklag. So, I mean, it's kind of grim, but uh, I think that's really what it was. So he turns, and what might seem the obvious thing to do, he still asks God, is this what you want me to do? He's not so proud to say, I'm the leader, I'm making decisions here, we're going to chase those guys. He turns to God and says, is this what you want me to do? This is similar to back in chapter 23, the Kila incident, where Kila was being invaded, and rather than rush down there, David said, let's check this out. God, do you want us to go? Are you going to give us victory? And God said yes in that situation as well, and he gave him victory. What the writer is doing here is showing us this pattern, that when David is walking closely with God, he seeks God's direction. This is the common following event, walking with God closely, seeking God's direction. We can learn from that, that as we walk with the Lord, the natural thing for us to do should be to seek his direction, to put his will ahead of ours. Instead of thinking, well, this is logical, we must just do this, that he would be the one to make the decisions. And so they go and pursue the Amalekites now. They come upon an Egyptian young man um, in the open country. So they've been tracking this raiding party, probably, you know, because there's like, it looks like a herd went ahead of them. I'm thinking the tracks must be pretty obvious. Uh, but they find this Egyptian who is evidently a slave that had been cast aside because he got sick. Um, he hasn't eaten anything for three days. So just doing the math here, it looks like Ziklag was probably raided very close to the same day that David and his men were told to go home. So three days, three days, so three-day journey. So he had been cast aside after three days. So they interrogate this guy, and he is willing to provide information in exchange for being part of the witness protection program. As long as you don't turn me over to my master or kill me, I'm happy to you know, tell you where they are or where they were going. And having this information allows them to proceed uh, much more quickly. Um, let's jump down to verse 16. And when he had taken him down, behold, there, there were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. So the, the, the Amalekites are having a party because they've been so successful in their raiding. They were so successful in their raiding because all of the people of Judah were encamped in one place and all of the soldiers of Philistia were encamped in another place and no one was protecting their towns. And so these unprotected towns were easy targets and the Amalekites had a heyday and were having a very successful raid on these areas. So David and his men um, attack. Um, it's a, an attack that lasts over a day, and they are able to completely win. They are able to take down all of the Amalekites with the except of exception. This is kind of interesting. I don't know why this detail is in here, but it's kind of curious except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled, into verse 17. So 
once again, the Amalekites are not completely wiped out. Not sure how many Amalekites were killed. David and his men have a tactical advantage in that they are surprising them. But it doesn't appear that they have a numerical advantage because they only had 400 men, and at least 400 men escaped. So there had to be more than 400 Amalekites there. But David has surprise on his side, and more importantly, he has God on his side. He has a mighty God who is fighting for him. And they recover all of the people. They recover their flocks and herds. They recover the goods that um, had been taken. It is as complete a victory as you could possibly hope for as far as David and Israel is concerned. And so the 400 men are now celebrating as they go back. They come to meet the 200 men who are too exhausted to follow. And David goes out to meet them. He doesn't just sit back and let them, they can come to me because, you know, they didn't go. He doesn't take that kind of attitude at all. We see compassion in David. And David came near to the people and he greeted them, end of 21. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except that any man may lead away his wife and children and depart. We'll let them have their wife and kids, but none of their property, none of the spoil, none of the booty. David reacts to that, showing some really godly leadership here, some godly wisdom. Verse 23, but David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He attributes this victory to the Lord. And all of this stuff that we have is a direct result of God giving it to us. You may think that you took it, but God gave it. And if we have something that God generously gave to us, we're not going to be stingy with it ourselves. We're going to generously give that part of that to other people as well. Continuing in 23, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. God gave the victory. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he created a statute and a rule for Israel. So David recognizes that there's more going on here than just some guys being lazy or too tired to fight that there was an important thing that they did. did. They stayed with <clears throat> the material goods that the 600 men were carrying who lightened their load so that they could move faster and attack the Amalekites. They were playing a support role to this army. And he said, the supporting people are going to share with the front lines equally. David's generosity and wisdom isn't completely the point here. The, the important point is that David, in his ruling, recognized God's role in providing victory. David is acting like a godly king should by pointing to God first and then using that, that vertical relationship to translate into a judicially fair relationship horizontally. David is acting like a king, like a wise king of Israel. <coughs> and in the last few verses in chapter 30, um, David comes to Ziklag, and then he starts sending parts of the spoil to various towns. I think there's 11 regions listed here in these last few verses, and um, some of them may have suffered a loss of goods due to the raids of the Amalekites, but it certainly endears him to these people. Um, one of the commentators felt like this was 
essentially a political move. You know, he's kind of greasing the skids because he knows he's going to be the next king. I think that's a little cynical. I think that, that based on what David just said, his generosity is evident and his wisdom in sharing, and I think that he is um, evidencing some of that here as well. So really our main point and takeaway for this morning is God protects the man whom he chooses to serve him. Over and over, we have seen God protecting David. He chose David. He's protecting David. He has a job for David to do. He's going to protect him to the end. A couple of points of application as we, um, as we wind up our time here. Three, really. A thought about returning to God, a thought about strength from God, a thought about uh, direction from God. So let's first think about returning to God. And we'll go back and why was David in Philistia in the first place? And I mentioned this earlier, but it appears that um, David left Judah and lived in Philistia because he had a faith failure. He didn't trust God to protect him in Judah, and he said, I've got to get out of here because it's only a matter of time until Saul kills me, until my number comes up. He wasn't trusting God to protect him in Judah, even though God had protected him time and time again in the past. There was a little bit of self-pity involved there, feeling sorry for himself, a little bit of fear involved there. And those kind of things can drive us to make decisions that we think are logical, but God isn't in it, that are not evidence of faith, but are evidence of fear. It's hard to blame David from a human standpoint of being tired of running, of t being tired of the trial. And yet, what God was trying to do was to teach David dependence on him because that dependence on him is going to be necessary throughout his reign. He wanted a humble king, one that would realize where his strength and power came from not from his own arm, his own sword, his own brilliant tactical mind, but from the strength of the arm of God Almighty. He wanted David to depend on him. What was David's relationship with God while he was in Philistia? Well, the, the writer in the text, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us no indication of that. We don't know if he had a vibrant relationship with God. I don't think he did. I think God was missing from this picture for an extended period of time. At least that's what the writer is showing us by the way he presented the story. Through David's continued deception, his continued presence outside of Israel, I think those are implying that they're, at a minimum, we could feel comfortable saying that David does not have a robust relationship with Jehovah God during this time period. So in chapter 29, we see him being tested again and protected. And then in chapter 30, we see him restored in his relationship to God. He returns to God. So how can we apply that to ourselves? Well, we all have difficult times in our lives. We all have trials of different sorts. Often they take shape of health or finances or relationships and in all of those trials, they have different, different fuses. <laughs> they have different lengths of time 
that they are active in our lives. And some of them are really long. Some of them feel like they're never going to end. And God is still there. And even when we may not have the best testimony during that time period of trial, even though we may not have the most vibrant walk with God during that trial, even though we may not trust him like we should in that trial, he is still there. And he's waiting. And he's loving. And he's protecting. And he has open arms ready to receive us back into fellowship. That's not an excuse for not walking with God during a trial. The ideal is that we walk with God closely through a trial, relying on him. But we, we all know that we've experienced times when we don't do that because we're human. We still have sinful hearts. We still have rebel hearts that stray from God. And what's important at that moment is that we return to him that we forsake our sin, that we confess it, that we seek restored relationship with him. You see, God didn't give up on David because he chose him. He chose him to be the next king. He chose you and me to be his children. He's not giving up on his kids. God's not doing that. We need to return to him. He stands ready to forgive when we haven't had the kind of relationship with him that he wants us to. 1 John 1, 9 may be ringing in some of your minds right now. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess. If God didn't, God didn't forgive our sins when we as his children confess him, he would not be faithful to the blood of Christ. He would not be just because when Jesus paid for our sins, he paid for all of them, both pre-salvation and after salvation. God is faithful and just, and he will forgive our sins when we confess. He wants that relationship with us. He created us for that. What about strength from God? At the lowest of lows, David's followers are debating stoning him, and he turns to God for strength. He has no one else to turn to at this point. There's no Jonathan there. There's no Samuel there. There's no Abigail there, the one who had spoken wisdom to him before, his spiritual wife. And so what does he have to do? He has to put on his spiritual big boy pants and do this himself. He has to walk with God for himself. No one can walk with God for you. You have to do it yourself. And we are here as community because God doesn't create us to be Lone Ranger Christians. He wants us to be part of a community of faith. He wants us to be part of a church. That's the word he uses, an assembly. And we are here to strengthen one another, as Jonathan did to David. But at the end of the day, if we don't pick up the mantle and walk with God for ourselves, no one's going to walk with God for us. We have to do this. Strength was found at the weakest time. And where did David find strength? He found it in the Lord. So what does that actually look like? Well, it, it didn't look like putting on a happy face and pretending everything was okay. It didn't look like just reciting trite spiritual slogans. It didn't involve wishful thinking. What it did look like was facing the reality of the situation. We have a tough situation here. Let's face the reality of it. Let's not try and make light of it. It's hard. It's supposed to be hard. 
and then reciting truth about God. We're not told a lot in this passage about what David did to strengthen himself, but if we go back to 23.16, and we're just about out of time, so I'm not going to. But what did, what did Jonathan do when he strengthened David in the Lord? He recited God's promises to David that David would reign. We can learn from that. What can we do as a friend to strengthen someone in the Lord who's going through trial? We take them back lovingly and gently to the promises of our faithful God. What can we do to strengthen ourselves in the Lord? We go back to the promises of our loving, faithful God. But you see, God's promises are only comforting if we actually know God. They're only comforting if we know that he is a promise-keeping God. And we look back at what he's done in the past, we can see what he will do in the future, and that helps us to live in the present. So we read the Psalms, we know that David often laid out his situation to God in bleak and stark terms, using words that sound like complaining. Words that you would think God would be like, stop complaining. <laughs> Opening up the earth and swallowing them or something. Questioning why God is doing what he was doing, wondering how long it was going to take. And in those Psalms, which we call laments, we often see a key word, but or yet. And on that hinge, the psalm swings. And it goes from, God, why are you doing this? But I know that my God is full of steadfast love and goodness, and therefore I will trust him. A decision to trust based on the promises of God and knowing his character, an affirmation of trust. So where does strength come from? Strength comes from knowing and trusting our powerful God. That's what we need. That's where we strengthen God. And the last bell rang, but I have one more. Very quickly, direction from God. With relationship to restore, David turns to God for direction. Where do I go now? What should I do? He seeks God's will. This should be a regular part of our fellowship with God, is seeking direction from him. Not just in the huge decisions, but in the daily life decisions that we make every day. God has chosen us to be his children. He wants relationship with us. He will provide strength and trial and direction in life, and we just need to seek him. So what does a man after God's own heart do in a trial? He turns to God for strength, and he seeks him for direction. That's what he does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of Scripture, for its transparency, for showing us David in his lowest and how he sought you at those times. I pray you'd teach us to do that. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.